Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. This episode contains racially insensitive language. Listener discretion is advised. It will be like an electric fan. You go to the wall and pull the plug and the fan will stop. When we get ashore at Incheon, the North Koreans will have no choice but to pull out or surrender. To General Douglas MacArthur, Commander-in-Chief of the United Nations Forces in Korea, it really was that simple. Follow his plan, pull off one of the most audacious amphibious assaults ever attempted, and the plug would be pulled from the war. The war would be won. MacArthur was not, though, short of doubters, and with no little reason. North Korea's lightning attack across the 38th parallel in June 1950 had hurtled the South Korean and US forces back to a small corner of the peninsula. Their backs were to the sea, defending the Pusan perimeter, little more than a bloody foothold. It had been a chastening few months for the US Army, but not MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur didn't do chastening. There ain't nobody gonna save my soul. He'd emerged from the Second World War an American hero and something of a Teflon commander. His mistakes didn't stick to him. He was 70 when the Korean War began and used to getting his own way. As dawn broke on 15th of September 1950, MacArthur climbed to the bridge of the Mount McKinley the flagship of the 260-ship Armada, assembled in the Yellow Sea. Good morning, General. Good morning, George. Fine morning for an invasion. Yes, sir. It carried the Marines and infantrymen who would, of this MacArthur was certain, change the course of the Korean War. He wore his usual peaked cap, the brim covered with enough gold braid to signify his importance wore his waist-length black leather jacket and dark glasses, and clutched his familiar corncob pipe. It was a look known throughout America, and a look that reassured America. MacArthur was their man. At least he certainly thought he was. In its outline, the plan was straightforward. Ship two divisions to the west coast of Korea, land at Incheon Port, then smash down the road and take nearby Seoul. I know that this operation will be sort of helter-skelter, but the 1st Marine Division is going to win the war by landing at Incheon. At the same time, General Walton Bulldog Walker would attack from Pusan with his reinforced 8th Army. With the amphibious force cutting the retreat north, the North Korean forces would be trapped. And then, destroyed. There ain't nobody gonna save my soul. This is Wars That Shaped the World.
in infamy. The best I can say of what General MacArthur is suggesting is that Inchon is not impossible. Not impossible, but pretty darn close to it. I can see no reason to support this, shall we say, bold plan. The Navy and Washington, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, MacArthur's bosses, had doubts, and plenty of them. Outside his HQ in Japan, MacArthur's plan was almost universally opposed. MacArthur had been a keen proponent of amphibious attacks in the Second World War, and even more so here, with the US having absolute control of the sea. Inchon would not only give the UN a valuable port, supply lines were to prove key throughout the war, it also allowed for an assault on Seoul, which itself was a vital crossroads for supplying North Korean forces in the south. All roads and rail lines converged on the capital. Take it, and those supply lines were cut. On paper, it looked straightforward, but there were complications. The largest was the tide. The coast around Incheon has extreme variations in tide, falling by as much as 32 feet over three miles. This meant only three dates, two in September and one in October, was suitable. Most serious of all, it meant that once the tide fell, landings would have to halt. Add in landing in a built-up area and having to scale seawalls, and the doubters had reason to doubt. Finally, the entire area was overlooked by hills from which any prepared enemy could pin down every stage of the landing. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Taplett, a veteran of the Pacific Campaign, was to lead a Marine battalion in the first wave, which would then have to battle on its own until the tide rose again in the evening. I thought it would be a very rough affair. I received an extraordinary message stating that once we were committed to the landing, we would continue with the operation until we suffered 82.3% casualties. I thought, God, what kind of idiot would write an order putting in a decimal point like that? By the time Taplet received his orders, the die was cast, and largely thanks to a performance by MacArthur worthy of Hollywood's finest silver screen. On 23rd of August, the US command met on the sixth floor of MacArthur's HQ in Tokyo. First, the Navy outlined their objections. Next, the Army ran through theirs. Minds were set against it. Amphibious experts said it would not work. Commanders from Pusan feared they couldn't afford to spare a single man for the landings. Through it all, MacArthur puffed on his pipe, saying nothing. When the last speaker was done, Rear Admiral James Doyle, MacArthur took the stage, as recalled by one of his staff officers. He spoke with that slow, deep resonance of an accomplished actor, like, Admiral, Admiral in all my years... In all my years of military service, 
That is the finest briefing I have ever received. <coughs> Commander, you have taught me all I had ever dreamed of knowing about tides. Do you know, in World War I, they got our divisions to Europe through submarine-infested seas? I have a deep admiration for the Navy. From the humiliation of Bataan, the Navy brought us back. Then literally, with a tear in his eye, he said, I never... I never thought the day would come that the Navy would be unable to support the Army in its operations. <coughs> MacArthur went on speaking for 45 minutes. It is plainly apparent that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global... He described how the war in Korea was part of the global battle against communism. How... The test is not in Berlin or Vienna, in London or Washington. It is here and now. It is along the Naktong River in South Korea. I am reminded of the great general... He spoke of his military hero, the doomed General Wolf at Quebec. Then came the grandstand finish. I can hear the ticking of the second hand of destiny. We must act now or we will die. We shall land at Incheon and I shall crush them. As MacArthur took a puff of his pipe and returned to his chair, one of the admirals stood. General, the Navy will get you to Incheon. Let's do it! Crush the to Incheon! The invasion was on. Brigadier John Brown, US Chief of Military History, wrote, In light of the uncertainties, his decision was a remarkable gamble and, given the results, one of exemplary baldness. The military historian Max Hastings put it more simply, a masterstroke. As dawn came on 15th September, the general settled himself into the captain's chair on the bridge of the Mount McKinley. He took a puff of his pipe and watched the landing craft carrying Lieutenant Colonel Taplett's first wave of Marines head into the inky pre-dawn light. MacArthur had got his way. Operation Chromite was underway. Commanding the invasion force was MacArthur's own chief of staff, General Ned Almond. He'd the 7th Infantry Division and 1st Marines augmented by a few South Korean units, making 70,000 men in all. There were no reinforcements available. If plan A didn't work, there would be no plan B. To the south, General Bulldog Walker was to launch a simultaneous attack out of the Pusan perimeter. But Walker decided the impact of the Incheon landings would have a damaging effect on the North Koreans, so better to wait a day. All eyes were then fixed on Incheon, the first major US amphibious landing since Okinawa in 1945. It went like clockwork. The first Marines landed at 0633 on Green Beach at Walmido Island. The fortified island protected Incheon Harbor, as well as the other two beaches, so had to be secured before the second wave could land. That was done by 0750. In less than 80 minutes, the Marines and their handful of tanks had killed 108 North Korean soldiers and captured a further 136 at a cost of 17 wounded. Two tanks smashed through a roadblock protecting the causeway to Incheon. 
Above them, the stars and stripes was run up on Radio Hill. Phase one was complete. MacArthur dispatched a signal to Admiral Struble, one of those who'd opposed the Inchon plan. The Navy and Marines have never shone more brightly than this morning. As the Marines dug themselves in, expecting large-scale counterattacks, behind them, the sea was in full retreat. The waiting game for Lieutenant Colonel Taplett and his men had begun. They were on their own in the danger zone. Above them, fighter bombers roamed inland. The US Air Force had complete control of the skies, pouncing on any target, searching for the buildup of communist units for the counterattack. Out at sea, British and US warships trained their huge guns on land. The North Koreans would surely know the importance of Incheon and the weakness of the UN forces' position. Except they didn't. They'd been taken completely by surprise, and what's more, didn't even have enough men to launch a meaningful counterattack. At half past two, the naval guns opened up, bombarding targets around Red and Blue Beach, both in Incheon itself. The guns began erratically. A few heavy thuds from the cruisers, an occasional bark of five-inch fire tuning up among the harsh orchestra. At what point the playing of the guns merged into the final and awful barrage, I do not know. So many things began to take place. The big ship swung gently in the tideway from time to time, coughing, heaving gusts of iron towards the town. It began to burn. The second wave of marines clambered down the nets into their landing craft, which circled and waited impatiently for the tide to rise. Back on Walmido Island, Taplet checked his watch again. Nearly a quarter to five. His mood had swung from anxiety to impatience. Such was the lack of any North Korean response. He'd requested permission to push across the causeway and begin the advance through Incheon himself. He'd been ordered to stay put. As Taplet urged his men to be patient, the landing craft were ordered to head for the beaches. At 17.32, the first Marines landed on Blue Beach. A minute later, they hit Red Beach. Leading one of the first assault teams on Red was Lieutenant Baldomero Lopez. He was first up the scaling ladders erected to get men over the sea wall. As he reached the top, Marguerite Higgins, the New York Herald Tribune reporter, snapped a photograph of him. Minutes later, Lopez was dead. After leaping off the wall, he pulled the pin on a grenade to hurl at a North Korean bunker. As he did so, he was shot in the shoulder and dropped the grenade. Taken under fire by an enemy automatic weapon and hit in the right shoulder and chest as he lifted his arm to throw, he fell backward and dropped the deadly missile. After a moment, he turned and dragged his body forward in an effort to retrieve the grenade and throw it. In critical condition from pain and loss of blood, and unable to grasp the hand grenade firmly enough to hurl it, he chose to sacrifice himself rather than endanger the lives of his men. And with a sweeping motion of his wounded right arm, cradled the grenade under him and absorbed the full impact of the explosion. Lopez, a 25-year-old former high school basketball star, was killed instantly. He was awarded a posthumous Medal of Honor. The mixed force of US and South Korean Marines soon achieved their first objective. It took just 22 minutes and a brief but fierce gunfight with a North Korean bunker to take Cemetery Hill. 
Their second target, Observatory Hill, proved tougher, but was in Marine hands by midnight. At Blue Beach, the legendary Colonel Chesty Puller led the attack. Puller had joined the Marines as a teenager during the First World War and was a month short of his 52nd birthday when he landed at Inchon. Puller's men took a little longer to achieve their D-Day objectives, but by 0130 had done so. The UN forces were safely ashore, bridgehead secure. The impossible had been achieved at the cost of 20 dead. It was an extraordinary success and an extraordinary triumph for MacArthur. It was to prove the high watermark of his career. The following days saw the American and South Korean forces make rapid advances towards Seoul. General Almond had promised MacArthur he'd take the capital by the 25th of September, for no better reason than it would mark three months to the day since it fell to the communists. Almond drove his men hard to reach the deadline, angering General Smith, the Marine commander. As the attack closed in on Seoul, advance units reached the suburbs on the 19th. Tensions grew between the army and the Marines. The Marines believed Almond was asking too much. Meanwhile, many army commanders thought Marine tactics outdated and costly, as Colonel Ellis Williamson explained. The Marines are a product of their history. They are trained, indoctrinated to go from ship to shore, then keep running forward until they have taken the pressure off the beachhead. The thought of outflanking a position would horrify a man like Chesty Puller. We used to call the Marines the nursery rhyme soldiers because their motto was, hey diddle diddle, right up the middle. On that march towards Seoul, I saw Marines doing things no army outfit would think of. I watched them crossing that great sweep of wide open ground in front of Kimpo Airfield. Hundreds of young men rising up and starting across the flats in open order. They took far more casualties than we considered appropriate. It took the Marines two hours to capture Kimpo Airfield after an intense firefight. Their tactics may have been questionable. Their courage was not. It gave the UN an airbase outside the Pusan perimeter, an important moment in the campaign. The battle for Seoul itself became increasingly bloody, while Alman became increasingly impatient. He was MacArthur's protege and could see his promise melting away in the face of fierce North Korean resistance. Smith's first Marines were shifted aside for, in Alman's eyes, advancing too slowly. Smith was furious at Alman's self-imposed deadline. He wanted that communique. I said I couldn't guarantee anything. That's up to the enemy. Almond ignored the fact that to even begin to take the city involved a series of draining assaults on each of the surrounding hills and heights. Attacking a city is a tough task, as history tells any commander. The 20,000 communists defending Seoul turned houses into strongholds, built barricades across street after street, and laid mines in the streets and then ambushed attempts to clear them. For four days, from 22nd of September, the UN forces battled for four key hills on the western edge of the city. The North Koreans were heavily entrenched in deep foxholes and concrete bunkers. More than 50 heavy machine guns with interlocking fields of fire dominated the hillsides. Almond decided on forcing a crossing of the Han River that curls around the western and southern edges of Seoul. It was to take place at the Sinsari Ferry 
by a mixed US and South Korean force. After a half-hour barrage, the troops crossed in small boats and were then faced with scaling cliffs of 30 to 60 feet. Such an improbable assault worked. The North Koreans were taken by surprise. By three o'clock, US troops had taken South Mountain, which commanded the southern side of Seoul. There was a tense wait for the counterattack. The city couldn't be defended if the Americans remained where they were. It came shortly before dawn, when 1,000 communists charged the US lines. One company was overrun, but after a two-hour battle, South Mountain was secure in UN hands. Around the same time, the commanders of the city's defense were killed in an enterprising ambush led by Lieutenant Harry McCaffrey, known as Irish Mac, a veteran of the Normandy landings. On 25th of September, Almond's due day, the Marines entered Seoul proper. The main North Korean forces had retreated, but the rear guard still had to be prized out house by house and barricade by barricade. It took around an hour for each chest-high barricade to be blasted through with the help of tank and air support. Almond was criticized for the number of civilian casualties and the devastation of the city that resulted. He claimed it was to save US lives. His critics said it was to meet his promise to MacArthur. He ordered the Marines to press on. I received another call from battalion. We were to jump off in a night attack. I argued the point, a night attack without reconnaissance. What were our objectives? Unknown to me, Colonel Ridge had already made these same arguments to Colonel Puller, who had already made them to General Smith, who had already made them to General Almond. But General Almond was adamant. I was sitting in the open, getting ready for the jump off, when I heard the sound of armor clanking down Mapo Boulevard. I flashed a mechanized warning over the tactical net and then reached for my hotline to the roadblock. As I did so, the lead tank fired its first round. These were Soviet-made T-34s with 85mm guns. That first round cracked behind me as I dived for the cellar steps. My radio operator did not follow me. That first round had gone right through him. Like for us, the North Korean tankers had an armor-piercing round in their tank chamber. If it had been high-explosive shell rather than AP, I would have been dead. By nightfall of the 26th, the UN controlled only half the city. It didn't seem to bother MacArthur. A day earlier, back at his HQ in Tokyo, he'd already announced to the world's media that Seoul had fallen. Three days later, he was back in Korea, leading a ceremony amongst Seoul's ruins to hand the capital back to South Korea's president, Syngman Rhee. The US Air Force commander, General Stratemeyer, flew in to stand alongside MacArthur. The ceremonies were in great dignity and simplicity. MacArthur, near the end of his message, broke down completely, and he had to stop and collect himself prior to the saying of the Lord's Prayer. President Rhee, in his statement, was impressive, and I admired his stamina and courage. Mrs. Rhee was also present. She is a sweet little old lady. Rhee took MacArthur's hand. We admire you, he said to the general. We love you as the savior of our race. While Incheon was an undoubted success, it came at a cost. 10th Corps, 
Almond's command took 3,500 casualties to an estimated 14,000 on the North Korean side. Meanwhile, 180 miles to the south, Bulldog Walker had at last sent his men on the offensive. The attack began the day after Inchon was taken and was slow going to start with. The North Koreans were well dug in on the heights across the Naktong River. On Hill 268, the communists were protected by log-covered bunkers dug deep into the hillside. It took two days for the hill to be captured, and that only after three flights of F-51 Mustangs fired rockets and dropped napalm. The North Koreans resisted to the last man. American air support was not always so effective. As the second week of the attack began, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of the British 27th Brigade had just captured Hill 282 when they called for air support. Major Kenneth Muir, the battalion's second in command, and two companies had resisted a first counterattack by the Koreans. When the attack resumed, they called in air support. Here they come, sir. Here they come. Bang on time, thank God for the Yanks. The Mustangs failed to spot the Argyles' recognition signals and dropped napalm on British positions, inflicting heavy casualties. Despite being left with only 30 men, Muir led a counter-attack that reclaimed the hill. No one's gonna drive the Argyles off this hill. Not the damn Gooks, not the bloody US Air Force. Come on, boys, charge! Muir led the assault, and there were only 14 men left when Muir, while firing a two-inch mortar, was shot dead. He was posthumously awarded the first of four Victoria Crosses handed out in Korea. The effect of his splendid leadership on the men was nothing short of amazing. And it was entirely due to his magnificent courage and example and the spirit which he imbued in those around him that all wounded were evacuated from the hill and as was subsequently discovered very heavy casualties inflicted on the enemy in defense of the crest his medal is today on display in the argyles museum in sterling castle as for the u.s air force's fatal error the British were as quick as the Americans to brush it under the carpet, as Sir John Slessor, head of the RAF, wrote to his US counterparts. No one makes a mistake of this sort purposely, and if you should find that some blame attaches to anyone in particular, I earnestly hope that you will see it as I do, that any mistake made is, in itself, full punishment enough and that no further action is necessary. A succession of such small battles for a succession of nameless hills at last led to the breakthrough. The North Koreans fell back, often in disarray as they were harried by constant air attacks. UN forces crossed the Naktong River. The Korean flank was turned, their positions indefensible. The advance progressed slowly at first, but by 23rd of September, according to US military historian Brigadier John Brown. The enemy cordon around the Pusan perimeter had been destroyed. North Korean soldiers in the south had disintegrated as an effective military force. Two days later, the western port of Kunsan was taken. By the end of the month, the shattered northern forces had fled beyond the 38th parallel. The Korean War was back where it began. 
the cost to the communists was huge. Some 23,000 were taken prisoner, many more killed. Bulldog Walker's 8th Army lost 790 killed. The war, so it seemed to all in the United Nations forces and the governments in Washington, London and beyond, was won. So what next? Firstly, there was relief in Washington. After the defeats and retreats of the previous few months, the struggle had been turned on its head by MacArthur's stroke of genius. The North Koreans had been comprehensively beaten and the feared start of coordinated communist actions elsewhere in the world had not materialised. Instead, the Soviets were distancing themselves from Kim Il-sung and his regime, a regime that appeared doomed. Dear Comrade Stalin, we consider it necessary to report to you the emergence of very unfavorable conditions for us. The enemy's air force, numbering about a thousand airplanes, totally dominate. If the enemy steps up its offensive operation into North Korea, then we will not be able to stop the enemy troops solely with our own forces. Therefore, we cannot help asking you to provide us with special assistance. Respectfully, the CC of the Workers' Party of Korea, Kim Il-sung. The Soviet Union remained at arm's length. By the 29th of September, while MacArthur was handing their capital back to their president, South Korean forces had already crossed the 38th parallel. Ri's goal was Korean unity under his rule. The remainder of the UN forces waited. What did Washington want? Truman seemed unsure. The worry was sparking a response from the Soviets if US soldiers appeared on their border. There were concerns about the Chinese reaction too, but they came some way behind the Soviets as a cause for concern. MacArthur had no concern over what he intended to do. He issued an ultimatum to the North. Lay down your weapons or we're coming for you. In Washington, there was another concern, this time over MacArthur himself. The general's insistence on doing everything his way was alarming. General Stratemeyer, the Air Force commander and one of MacArthur's staunchest supporters, observed in his diary. Up to 29 September, General MacArthur had not received a single commendation or congratulation note on the successes that he has had in Korea from anyone connected with the administration, including the president. None of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including General Bradley, nor any member of the Department of Defense, nor any member of the State Department, had sent one word of praise to the boss. When I heard this news, I just plain couldn't understand it. At some point, there had to be a confrontation between the political will of Truman and MacArthur's my way or the highway. Sometimes I live in the country. Sometimes I On this occasion, the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought MacArthur was right. The campaign should be taken north to ensure the final destruction of North Korea's military capabilities. Truman ummed and ahed for a time before backing the Joint Chiefs. MacArthur was ordered to cross the 38th and destroy the North Korean army.
The Joint Chiefs attached further ground rules for MacArthur, a man long since used to setting his own rules. US troops were not to set foot in Soviet or Chinese territory, and only South Korean soldiers were to operate in the border regions. At last, the new Secretary of Defense, General George Marshall, gave MacArthur Washington's blessing to cross the 38th, a message endorsed by Truman. MacArthur was also given the task of uniting Korea under President Rhee. Your military objective is the destruction of the North Korean armed forces. You are authorized to conduct military operations, including amphibious and airborne landings or ground operations north of the 38th parallel in Korea. Britain, which, like the US, believed the war effectively over, backed plans to press on north. Meanwhile, China was sending messages via its favored third party, the Indian government. They took the form of thinly veiled warnings. If North Korea is invaded, do not expect us to stand aside and watch. Nobody took much notice. China remained a mystery to many in Washington, with the focus on the Soviets. Never mind the Chinese. What would Stalin do? On 7th of October, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution calling for unification of Korea and authorizing MacArthur to send troops across the 38th. The Soviets proposed a ceasefire and for all foreign troops to withdraw. Meanwhile, India repeated its message, do not cross the 38th. It was ignored. At 0900 hours on the 9th of October, the US 1st Cavalry crossed the 38th parallel and attacked north. Ahead of them, South Korean forces were already making rapid progress. On 10th of October, two South Korean divisions took the key port of Wonsan. North Korea is divided by the Tabak mountain range, which made any east-west movements difficult. So MacArthur decided to keep his command divided. In the west, Bulldog Walker would drive northwards with his 8th Army, while Ned Almond, MacArthur's man, would lead his smaller 10th Corps, the victors of Incheon, up the country's east flank. Three days into the advance, the 8th Army faced their first major obstacle, a key ridge protecting the road north from Kaesong. Like many of the Korean War's mini battles, it was a grim, brutal grind uphill with many casualties on both sides. Amid the carnage, there were acts of breathtaking bravery. Lieutenant Samuel Corson was an athletic 24-year-old platoon commander from New Jersey. During the battle for Hill 174, Corson saw one of his men fall wounded in the mouth of a gun emplacement and ran to help him. He was forced into hand-to-hand -hand combat to save his comrade, and at fatal cost. Corson was found surrounded by the bodies of seven North Koreans. He'd both saved the wounded man and wiped out the gun emplacement. He was awarded a posthumous Medal of Honor. As the result of First Lieutenant Corson's violent struggle, several of the enemy's heads had been crushed with his rifle. His aggressive and intrepid action saved the life of the wounded man, eliminated the main position of the enemy roadblock, and greatly inspired the man in his command. Corson was a graduate of the prestigious West Point Military Academy. From his class alone, 30 young officers were killed in Korea. North Korean resistance was at first fierce, but not for long. 
On the night of the 14th of October, the 5th Cavalry entered Pyongyang, taking the North Korean capital without difficulty. Kim Il-sung and his government had fled. Ten days later, Bulldog Walker set up 8th Army's HQ in the building Kim had ruled from just days before. A portrait of Stalin was torn from where it had looked down on Kim's large desk. Less than six weeks earlier, Walker and his men had been clinging on to the Pusan perimeter, 320 miles south. Now, they were 130 miles inside North Korea. And they weren't done. The two-pronged UN force pushed on north, heading for the Yalu River, the border between Korea and China. By late October, the 1st Battalion of the 21st Infantry reached Chongodong, southwest of Sinuiju on the Yalu. Days earlier, Truman and MacArthur had met on Wake Island in the Pacific. MacArthur informed the president resistance in the north would be over by Thanksgiving. He would, MacArthur declared, have the 8th Army back in Japan for Christmas 1950 and leave 10th Corps as the Army of Occupation. MacArthur returned to Tokyo furious at having been summoned to meet the president. He believed he'd better things to do in a war than Glad Hand Truman. The split between Washington and MacArthur was widening, and Truman had missed his chance to assert his authority. He and his staff failed to see where MacArthur was heading in his plans for the war. Back in Korea, Bob Hope arrived and performed for troops across the north, including in Pyongyang. I said, no, I want to fly to Korea. So he said, well, maybe I can arrange it. There's a lot of red tape connected with getting a person out of the country, but in your case, I think it is worth it. And, uh... But after my physical, they gave me the same classification as I had in the last war, chicken first class. <laughs> Morale among the American and Allied soldiers was high, but then the unexpected happened. MacArthur had issued a directive removing restrictions on UN troops operating near the border with China. To hell with the UN, thought MacArthur. This is my war. In Washington, there was concern, but no move to stop him. In October, US soldiers reached the banks of the Yalu River and stared into the vastness of China. MacArthur didn't believe the Chinese would cross the river. Neither did his staff. Nobody thought China would intervene, regardless of what the Chinese themselves were saying. The war was won. The North Korean army all but obliterated. The job of unifying Korea almost done. Just the I's to dot and T's to cross. Then, on 25th of October, a South Korean battalion advanced along the Yalu River to attack a small North Korean force. This was the mopping up that comes at the end of any war. What followed was confusing, but ended with what was left of the South Koreans fleeing. They did manage to take a couple of prisoners who were sent back for interrogation. The two men wore smocks and had red stars on their caps. These weren't beaten and bedraggled North Koreans. These were Chinese soldiers. Are there many of you here? Asked the interrogator. Many, many, came the answer. The Korean War was about to take another dramatic turn.
next on Wars That Shaped the World. They were unlike any enemy I'd seen before. They wore thick, padded clothing, which made them look like the little Michelin man. I turned one body over with my foot and saw that he wore a peaked cap with a red star badge. These soldiers were Chinese. I turned over another, and as I looked down at him, he opened one eye and looked up at me. I shot him with my Luger, shouting to the platoon, they're alive. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.